CD7 Perhaps I ought to do it, said Nanny in a loud voice. I'm experienced at balls. I bet if I wore my hair long and wore the mask and them shiny shoes and we hemmed up the dress a foot, no one'd know the difference. What do you say? Magrat was so overawed by the sheer fascinating picture of this that she obeyed unthinkingly when Granny Weatherwax said, Look at me, Magrat Garlic. The pumpkin coach entered the palace drive at high speed, scattering horses and pedestrians, and braked by the steps in a shower of gravel. That was fun, said Grebo, and then lost interest. A couple of flunkies bustled forward to open the door, and were nearly thrown back by the sheer force of the arrogance that emanated from within. Hurry up, peasants! Magrat swept out, pushing the major-domo away. She gathered up her skirts and ran up the red carpet. At the top, a footman was unwise enough to ask for her ticket. You impertinent lackey! The footman, recognising instantly the boundless bad manners of the well-bred, backed away quickly. Down by the coach, Nanny Og said, You don't think you might have overdone it a little bit? I had to, said Granny. You know what she's like. How are we going to get in? We ain't got tickets, and we ain't dressed properly either. Get the broomsticks down off the rack, said Granny. We're going straight to the top. They touched down on the battlements of a tower overlooking the palace grounds. The strains of courtly music drifted up from below, and there was the occasional pop and flare of fireworks from the river. Granny opened a likely-looking door in the tower and descended the circular stairs which led to a landing. Posh carpet on the floor, said Nanny. Why is it on the walls, too? Them's tapestries, said Granny. Cure, said Nanny. You live and learn. Well, I do, anyway. Granny stopped with her hands on a doorknob. What do you mean by that, she said. Well, I never knew you had a sister. We never talked about her. It's a shame when families break up like that, said Nanny. Eh, you said your sister Beryl was a greedy ingrate with the conscience of an oyster. Well, yes, but she is my sister. Granny opened the door. Well, well, she said. What's up? What's up? Don't just stand there. Nanny peered around her and into the room. Coo, she said. Magrat paused in the big red velvet anteroom. Strange thoughts fireworked around her head. She hadn't felt like this since the herbal wine. But struggling among them like a tiny prosaic potato in a spray of psychedelic chrysanthemums was an inner voice screaming that she didn't even know how to dance, apart from in circles. But it couldn't be difficult if ordinary people managed it. The tiny inner Magrat, struggling to keep its balance on the surge of an arrogant self-confidence, wondered if this was how Granny Weatherwax felt all the time. She raised the hem of her dress slightly and looked down at her shoes. They couldn't be real glass, or else she'd be hobbling towards some emergency first aid by now. Nor were they transparent. The human foot is a useful organ, but is not, except to some people with highly specialised interests, particularly attractive to look at. The shoes were mirrors. Dozens of facets caught in the light. Two mirrors on her feet. Magrat vaguely recalled something about... About a witch never getting caught between two mirrors, wasn't it? Or was it never trust a man with orange eyebrows? Something she'd been taught back when she'd been an ordinary person? Something like, a witch should never stand between two mirrors because... Because... Because the person that walked away might not be the same person. Or something. 
Like you were spread out among the images, your whole soul was pulled out thin, and somewhere in the distant images a dark part of you would get out and come looking for you, if you weren't very careful. Or something. She overruled the thought. It didn't matter. She stepped forward to where a little knot of other guests were waiting to make their entrance. Lord Henry Gleet and Lady Gleet. The ballroom wasn't a room at all, but a courtyard open to the soft night airs. Steps led down into it. At the far end, another much wider staircase, lined with flickering torches, led up into the palace itself. On the far wall, huge and easily visible, was a clock. The Honourable Douglas Incessant. The time was a quarter to eight. Magrat had a vague recollection of some old woman shouting something about the time, but, but that didn't matter either. Lady Volentia d'Arrangement. She reached the top of the stairs. The butler, who was announcing the arrivals, looked her up and down, and then, in the manner of one who had been coached carefully all afternoon for this very moment, bellowed, Eh, uh, mysterious and beautiful stranger! Silence spread out from the bottom of the steps like spilled paint. Five hundred heads turned to look at Magrat. A day before, even the mere thought of having five hundred people staring at her would have melted Magrat like butter in a furnace. But now she stared back, smiled, and raised her chin haughtily. Her fan snapped open like a gunshot. The mysterious and beautiful stranger, daughter of Simplicity Garlic, granddaughter of Araminta Garlic, her self-possession churning so strongly that it was crystallising out on the sides of her personality, stepped out. A moment later, another guest stalked past the butler. The butler hesitated. Something about the figure worried him. It kept going in and out of focus. He wasn't entirely certain if there was anyone else there at all. Then his common sense, which had temporarily gone and hidden behind something, took over. After all, it was Samdine Wee Moore. People were supposed to dress up and look weird. You were allowed to see people like that. Ha, excuse me, sir, he said. Who shall I say it is? I'm here, incognito. The butler was sure nothing had been said, but he was also certain that he had heard the words. Um, fine, he mumbled. Go on in, then. Um, he brightened. Damn good mask, sir. He watched the dark figure walk down the steps and leaned against a pillar. Well, that was about it. He pulled a handkerchief out from his pocket, removed his powdered wig and wiped his brow. He felt as though he'd just had a narrow escape. And what was even worse was that he didn't know from what. He looked cautiously around and then sidled into the anteroom and took up a position behind a velvet curtain where he could enjoy a quiet roll-up. He nearly swallowed it when another figure loped silently up the red carpet. It was dressed like a pirate that had just raided a ship carrying black leather goods for the discerning customer. One eye had a patch over it, the other gleamed like a malevolent emerald, and no one that big ought to be able to walk that quietly. The butler stuck the dog end behind his ear. Excuse me, my lord, he said, running after the man and touching him firmly yet respectfully on the arm. I shall need to see your ticket, your ticket. The man transferred his gaze to the hand on his arm. The butler let go hurriedly. Row! Your ticket. The man opened his mouth and hissed. Of course, said the butler, backing away with the efficient speed of someone who certainly isn't being paid enough to face a needle-toothed maniac in black leather. 
I expect you're one of the Duke's friends, <laughs> yes? No problem, no problem, but Sir has forgotten Sir's mask. The butler waved frantically to a side table piled high with masks. The Duke requested that everyone here is masked, said the butler. Uh, I wonder if Sir would find something here to his liking? There's always a few of them, he thought to himself. It says mask in big curly letters on the invite, in gold yet. But there's always a few buggers who thinks it means it's from someone called Maskew. This one was quite likely looting towns when he should have been learning to read. The greasy man stared at the masks. All the good ones had been taken by earlier arrivals, but that didn't seem to dismay him. He pointed. Want that one, he said. Ah, uh, uh, very good choice, my lord. Allow me to help you on... The man glared at him, then dropped the mask over his head and squinted out through an eye hole at a mirror. Damn odd, the butler thought. I mean, it's not the kind of mask the men choose. They go for skulls and birds and bulls and stuff like that. Not cats. The odd thing was that the mask had just been a pretty ginger cat head when it was on the table. On its wearer, it was still a cat head, only a lot more so, and somehow slightly more feline and a lot nastier than it should have been. Always wanted to be ginger, said the man. On you, it looks good, sir, trilled the butler. The cat-headed man turned his head this way and that, clearly in love with what he was seeing. Grebo yowled softly and happily to himself and ambled into the mall. He wanted something to eat, someone to fight, and then, well, he'd have to see. For wolves and pigs and bears, thinking that they're human is a tragedy. For a cat, it's an experience. Besides, this new shape was a lot more fun. No one had thrown an old boot at him for over ten minutes. The two witches looked around the room. Odd, said Nanny Og, not what I'd expect in, you know, a royal bedroom. Is it a royal bedroom? There's a crown on the door. Oh. Granny looked around at the decor. What do you know about royal bedrooms, she said, more or less for something to say. You've never been in a royal bedroom. I might have been, said Nanny. You never have. Remember young Verence's coronation? We all got invited to the palace, said Nanny. When I went to have a... to powder me nose... I saw the door open, so I went in and had a bit of a bounce up and down. What was it like? Very comfy. Young Magrat doesn't know what she's missing. And it was a lot better than this, I don't mind saying, said Nanny. The basic colour was green. Green walls, green floor. There was a wardrobe and a bedside table, even a bedside rug, which was green. The light filtered in through a window filled with greenish glass. Like being at the bottom of a pond, said Granny. She swatted something, and there's flies everywhere. She paused as if thinking very hard and said, Hmm. A duck pond, said Nanny. There were flies everywhere. They buzzed on the window and zigzagged aimlessly back and forth across the ceiling. Duck pond, Nanny repeated, because people who make that kind of joke never let well alone. Like duck. I heard, said Granny. She flailed at a fat blue bottle. Anyway, you'd think there wouldn't be flies in a royal bedroom, muttered Nanny. 
You'd think there'd be a bed, in fact, said Granny, which there wasn't. What there was instead, and what was preying somewhat on their minds, was a big round wooden cover on the floor. It was about six feet across. There were convenient handles. They walked around it. Flies rose up and hummed away. I'm thinking of a story, said Granny. Me too, said Nanny Og, her tone slightly shriller than usual. There was this girl who married this man, and he said you can go anywhere you like in the palace, but you mustn't open that door, and she did, and she found he murdered all his other... Her voice trailed off. Granny was staring hard at the cover and scratching her chin. Put it like this, said Nanny, trying to be reasonable against all odds. What could we possibly find under there that's worse than we could imagine? They each took a handle. Five minutes later, Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og stepped outside the Duke's bedroom. Granny closed the door very quietly. Caw, said Nanny, her face still pale. Yes, said Granny, stories. I'd heard about, you know, people like him, but I never believed it. Yuck, I wonder what he looks like. You can't tell just by looking, said Granny. It explains the flies at any rate, said Nanny Og. She raised a hand to her mouth in horror. And our Magrat's down there with him, she said. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to meet one another, and... But there's hundreds of other people, said Granny. It's hardly what you'd call intimate. Yes, but even the thought of him, you know, even touching her. I mean, it'd be like holding her. Does Ella count as a princess, do you think? said Granny. What? Oh, yeah, probably. For foreign parts. Why? Then that means there's more than one story here. Lily's letting several happen all at the same time, said Granny. Think about it. It's not touching that's the trick. It's kissing. We've got to get down there, said Nanny. We've got to stop it. I mean, you know me, I'm no prude, but... Ugh. I say, old woman... They turned. A small fat woman in a red dress and a towering white wig was peering haughtily at them from behind a fox mask. Yes, snapped Granny. Yes, my lady, said the fat woman. Where are your manners? I demand that you direct me to the powder room this instant. And what do you think you're doing? This was to Nanny Og, who was walking around her and staring critically at her dress. "'You're a twenty, maybe a twenty-two, said Nanny. "'What? What is this impertinence?' Nanny Og rubbed her chin thoughtfully. "'Well, I don't know,' she said. "'Red in a dress has never been me. "'You haven't got anything in blue, have you?' The choleric woman turned to strike Nanny with her fan, but a skinny hand tapped her on the shoulder. As she passed out dreamily, she was aware of a voice a long way off, saying, "'Well, that's me fitted, but she's never a size twenty, and if I had a face like that, I'd never wear red.'" Lady Valentia d'Arrangement relaxed in the inner sanctum of the ladies' restroom. She removed her mask and fished an errant beauty spot from the depths of her décolletage. Then she reached around and down to try and adjust her bustle an exercise guaranteed to produce the most ridiculous female gymnastics on every world except those where the panty girdle had been invented. Apart from being as well adapted a parasite as the oak bracket fungus, Lady Valentia d'Arrangement was by and large a blameless sort of person. She always attended events for the better class of charity and made a point of knowing the first names of nearly all her servants, the cleaner ones at least. 
and she was on the whole kind to animals and even to children if they'd been washed and didn't make too much noise. All in all, she didn't deserve what was about to happen to her, which was the fate Mother Nature had in store for any woman in this room on this night who happened to have approximately the same measurements as Granny Weatherwax. She was aware of someone coming up behind her. "'Excuse me, missus.' It turned out to be a small, repulsive, lower-class woman with a big, ingratiating smile. "'What do you want, old woman?' said Lady Valentia. "'Excuse me,' said Nanny Og. "'My friend over there would like a word with you.' Lady Valentia looked around haughtily into icy, blue-eyed, hypnotic oblivion. "'What's this thing like an extra bump, hobo?' "'It's a bustle, Esme. "'It's damn uncomfortable, is what it is. "'I keep on feeling someone's following me around. "'The white suits you, anyway.' "'Granny donned her mask.' It was an eagle's face in white feathers stuck with sequins. Nanny adjusted some unmentionable underpinning somewhere beneath her crinoline and straightened up. Caw, look at us,' she said. "'Them feathers in your hair really look good.' "'I've never been vain,' said Granny Weatherwax. "'You know that, Gither. "'No one could ever call me vain.' "'No, Esme,' said Nanny Og. "'Granny twirled a bit. "'Are you ready, then, Dame Og?' she said. Yes, let's do it, Lady Weatherwax. The dance floor was thronged. Decorations hung from every pillar, but they were black and silver, the colours of the festival of Samadhi Nui Moor. An orchestra was playing on a balcony. Dancers twirled. The din was immense. A waiter with a tray of drinks suddenly found that he was a waiter without a tray of drinks. He looked around and then down to a small fox under a huge white wig. "'Bugger off and get us some more,' said Nanny pleasantly. "'Can you see her, your ladyship?' "'There's too many people. "'Well, can you see the duck? "'How do I know? Everyone's got masks on. "'Hey, is that food over there?' "'Many of the less energetic or more hungry of the genuine nobility "'were clustered around the long buffet. "'All they were aware of, apart from sharp digs with a pair of industrious elbows, "'was an amiable monotone at chest height on the lines of "'Mind your backs, stand aside there, coming through.' Nanny fought her way to the table and nudged a space for Granny Weatherwax. Caw, what a spread, eh? she said. Mind you, they have tiny chickens in these parts. She grabbed a plate. I'll have three. Here, Charlie Chan. A flunky stared at her. Got any pickles? I'm afraid not, ma'am. Nanny Og looked along a table which included roast swans, a roasted peacock that probably wouldn't have felt any better about it even if it had known that its tail feathers were going to be stuck back in afterwards and more fruits, boiled lobsters, nuts, cakes, creams and trifles than a hermit's dream. Well, got any relish? No, ma'am. Tomato ketchup? No, ma'am. And they call this a gourmet paradise, muttered Nanny, as the band struck up the next dance. She nudged a tall figure helping himself to the lobster. Some place, eh? Very nice. Good mask you've got there. Thank you. Nanny was spun around by Granny Weatherwax's hand on her shoulder. "'There's Magrat!' "'Where? Where?' said Nanny. "'Over there, sitting by the potted plants.' "'Oh, yes, on the chassis long you,' said Nanny. "'That's sofa in foreign, you know,' she added. "'What's she doing?' "'Being attractive to men, I think.' "'What? Magrat?' "'Yeah, you're really getting good at that hypnotism, ain't you?' Magrat fluttered her fan and looked up at the Comte de Yo-Yo. 
"'La, sir,' she said, "'you may get me another plate of lark's eggs, if you really must.' "'Like a shot, dear lady,' the old man bustled off in the direction of the buffet. Magrat extended her languorous hand towards Captain de Vere of the Palace Guard. He stood to attention. "'Dear Captain,' she said, "'you may have the pleasure of the next dance.' "'Acting like a hussy,' said Granny disapprovingly. Nanny gave her an odd look. "'Not really,' she said. "'Anyway, a bit of hussing never did anyone any harm. "'At least none of those men looked like the duck. "'Here, what you doing?' This was to a small bald-headed man who was trying surreptitiously to set up a small easel in front of them. Uh, "'If you ladies could just hold still for a few minutes,' he said shyly, "'for the woodcut.' "'What woodcut?' said Granny Weatherwax. "'You know,' said the man, opening a small penknife. "'Everyone likes to see their woodcut in the broadsheets after a ball like this. "'Lady Thing enjoying a joke with Lord Watsit, that sort of thing.' Granny Weatherwax opened her mouth to reply, but Nanny Og laid a gentle hand on her arm. She relaxed a little and sought for something more suitable to say. "'I knows a joke about alligator sandwiches,' she volunteered, and shook Nanny's hand away. "'There was a man, and he went into an inn, and he said, "'Do you sell alligator sandwiches?' "'And the other man said, "'Yes,' and he said, "'Then give me an alligator sandwich, and don't be a long time about it.' "'She gave a triumphant look. "'Yes,' said the woodcutter, chipping away quickly. "'And, and then what happened?' "'Nanny Og dragged Granny away quickly, searching for a distraction.' "'Some people don't know a joke when they hear it,' said Granny. "'As the band launched into another number, "'Nanny Og fumbled in a pocket and found the dance card "'that belonged to an owner now slumbering peacefully in a distant room. "'Sir Roger the Coverley?' "'Ma'am?' "'Granny Weatherwax looked around. "'A plump military man with big whiskers was bowing to her. "'He looked as though he'd enjoyed quite a few jokes in his time. "'Yes?' "'You... "'Promised me the honour of this dance, my lady?' "'No, I didn't,' the man looked puzzled. "'But I assure you, Lady Derangement, your card. "'My name is Colonel Moutard.' "'Granny gave him a look of deep suspicion "'and then read the dance card attached to her fan. "'Ow! Do you know how to dance?' hissed Nanny. "'Of course. Never seen you dance,' said Nanny.' Granny Weatherwax had been on the point of giving the Colonel as polite a refusal as she could manage. Now she threw back her shoulders defiantly. "'A witch can do anything she puts her mind to, Githa Og. Come, Mr. Colonel.' Nanny watched as the pair disappeared into the throng. "'Hello, foxy lady,' said a voice behind her. She looked around. There was no one there. "'Down here,' she looked down. A very small body, wearing the uniform of a captain in the palace guard, a powdered wig, and an ingratiating smile beamed up at her. "'My name's Casananda,' he said. "'I'm reputed to be the world's greatest lover. What do you think?' Nanny Og looked him up and down, or at least down and further down. "'You're a dwarf,' she said. "'Size isn't important.' Nanny Og considered her position. One colleague, known for her shy and retiring nature, was currently acting like what's-her-name, the heathen queen who was always playing up to men very odd and dancing with a man, even though she didn't know one foot from the other. 
Nanny Og felt she was at least owed a bit of time in which to be her own woman. "'Can you dance as well?' she said wearily. "'Oh, yes. How about a date?' "'How old do you think I am?' said Nanny. Casanunda considered. "'All right, then,' he said. "'How about a prune?' Nanny sighed and reached down for his hand. "'Come on.' Lady Valentia d'Arrangement staggered limply along a passageway, a forlorn thin shape in complicated corsetry and ankle-length underwear. She wasn't at all sure what had happened. There had been that frightful woman, and then this feeling of absolute bliss, and then she'd been sitting on the carpet with her dress off. Lady Valentia had been to enough balls in her dull life to know that there were occasions when you woke up in strange rooms with your dress off, but that tended to be later in the evening, and at least you had some idea of why you were there. She eased her way along, holding on to the wall. Someone was definitely going to get told off about this. A figure came around a bend in the corner, idly tossing a turkey leg into the air with one hand and catching it with the other. "'I say,' said Lady Valentia, "'I wonder if you would be so good as to—' "'Oh!' She looked up at a leather-clad figure with an eye patch and a grin like a corsair raider. "'Oh! I say!' "'Nothing to this dancing,' Granny Weatherwax told herself. It's just moving around to music. It helps to be able to read her partner's mind. Dancing is instinctive after you've got past that stage of looking down to see what your feet are doing. He soon gave in, partly in the face of Granny Weatherwax's sheer refusal to compromise, but mainly because of her boots. Lady Derangement's shoes hadn't fitted. Besides, Granny was attached to her boots. They had complicated iron fixtures and toe caps like battering rams. When it came to dancing, Granny's boots went exactly wherever they wanted to go. She steered her helpless and slightly crippled partner towards Nanny Og, who had already cleared quite a space around her. What Granny could achieve with two pounds of hobnailed syncopation, Nanny Og could achieve merely with her bosom. It was a large and experienced bosom, and not one that was subject to restraint. As Nanny Og bounced down, it went up. When she gyrated right, it hadn't finished twirling left. In addition, Nanny's feet moved in a complicated jig-step regardless of the actual tempo, so that while her body actually progressed at the speed of a waltz, her feet were doing something a bit nearer to a hornpipe. The total effect obliged her partner to dance several feet away, and many surrounding couples to stop dancing just to watch in fascination in case the build-up of harmonic vibrations dropped her into the chandeliers. Granny and her helpless partner whirled past. "'Stop showing off!' Granny hissed, and disappeared into the throng again. "'Who's your friend?' said Casanunda. "'She's—' Nanny began. There was a blast of trumpets. "'That was a bit off the beat,' she said. "'No, that means the Duke is arriving,' said Casanunda. The band stopped playing. The couples, as one, turned and faced the main staircase. There were two figures descending in stately fashion. "'My word, he's a sleek and handsome devil,' Nanny told herself. "'It just goes to show. Esme's right. "'You can never tell by looking. "'And her... that's Lily Weatherwax?' "'The woman wasn't masked. "'Give or take the odd laughter line and wrinkle, "'it was Granny Weatherwax to the life. "'Nanny found she was turning to find the white eagle head in the crowd. "'All heads were turned to the staircase, "'but there was one staring as if her gaze was a steel rod.' 
Lily Weatherwax wore white. Until that point, it had never occurred to Nanny Og that there could be different colours of white. Now she knew better. The white of Lily Weatherwax's dress seemed to radiate. If all the lights went out, she felt, Lily's dress would glow. It had style, it gleamed, and puffed sleeves, and was edged with lace. And Lily Weatherwax looked, Nanny Og had to admit it, younger. There was the same bone structure and fine Weatherwax complexion, but it looked less worn. If that's what being bad does to you, Nanny thought, I could have done with some of that years ago. The wages of sin is death, but so is the salary of virtue, and at least the evil get to go home early on Fridays. The eyes were the same, though. Somewhere in the genetics of the Weatherwaxes was a piece of sapphire, maybe generations of them. The Duke was unbelievably handsome, but that was understandable. He was wearing black. Even his eyes wore black. Nanny surfaced and pushed her way through the throng to Granny Weatherwax. Esme? She grabbed Granny's arm. Esme? Hmm? Nanny was aware that the crowd was moving, parting like a sea between the staircase and the chaise long at the far end of the hall. Granny Weatherwax's knuckles were as white as her dress. Esme, what's happening? What are you doing? said Nanny. Trying to stop the story, said Granny. What's she doing then? Letting things happen. The crowd were pulling back past them. It didn't seem to be a conscious thing. It was just happening that a sort of corridor was forming. Magrat stood up. Nanny was aware of a rainbow hue in the air. Possibly there was a tweeting of bluebirds. The prince took Magrat by the hand. Nanny glanced up at Lily Weatherwax, who had remained a few steps up from the foot of the stairs and was smiling beneficently. Then she tried to put a focus on the future. It was horribly easy. Normally the future is branching off at every turn, and it's only possible to have the haziest idea of what is likely to happen, even when you're as temporally sensitive as a witch. But here there were stories coiled around the tree of events, bending it into a new shape. Granny Weatherwax wouldn't know what a pattern of quantum inevitability was if she found it eating her dinner. If you mentioned the words paradigms of space-time to her, she'd just say, what? But that didn't mean she was ignorant. It just meant that she didn't have any truck with words, especially gibberish. She just knew that there were certain things that happened continually in human history, like three-dimensional clichés. Stories. And now we're part of it, and I can't stop it, said Granny. There's got to be a place where I can stop it, and I can't find it. The band struck up. It was playing a waltz. Magrat and the prince whirled around the dance floor once, never taking their eyes off each other. Then a few couples dared to join them. And then, as if the whole ball was a machine whose spring had been wound up again, the floor was full of dancing couples and the sounds of conversation flowed back into the void. "'Are you going to introduce me to your friend?' said Casanunda from somewhere near Nanny's elbow. People swept past them. "'It's all got to happen,' said Granny, ignoring the low-level interruption." Everything, the kiss, the clock striking midnight, her running out and losing the glass slipper, everything. Ugh, yuck, said Nanny, leaning on her partner's head. I'd rather lick Tords. She looks just my type, said Casanunda, his voice slightly muffled. I've always been very attracted to dominant women. The witches looked at the whirling couple who were staring into one another's eyes. I could trip them up, no trouble said Nanny. You can't. That's not something that can happen. Well, Magrat's sensible, more or less sensible, 
said Nanny. Maybe she'll notice something's wrong. I'm good at what I do, Githa Og, said Granny. She won't notice nothing until the clock strikes midnight. They both turned to look up. It was barely nine. You know, said Nanny Og, clocks don't strike midnight. Seems to me they just strike twelve. I mean, it's just a matter of bongs. They both looked up at the clock again. In the swamp, Legba the black cockerel crowed. He always crowed at sunset. Nanny Og pounded up another flight of stairs and leaned against the wall to catch her breath. It had to be somewhere around here. Another time you'll learn to keep your mouth shut, Githel Og, she muttered. I expect we're leaving the hurly-burly of the ball for an intimate tete-a-tete somewhere, said Casananda, hopefully, trotting along behind her. Nanny tried to ignore him and ran along a dusty passage. There was a balcony rail on one side looking down into the ballroom, and there a small wooden door. She rammed it open with her elbow. Within, mechanisms whirred in counterpoint to the dancing figures below, as if the clock was propelling them, which, in a metaphorical sense, it was. Clockwork, Nanny thought. Once you know about clockwork, you know about everything. I wish I bloody well knew about clockwork. Very cosy, said Casanunda. She squeezed through the gap and into the clock space. Cogwheels clicked past her nose. She stared at them for a moment. Lorks, all this just to chop time up into little bits. It might be just the teeniest bit cramped, said Casanunda from somewhere near her armpit. But needs must, ma'am. I remember once in Quirm there was this sedan chair and... Let's see, thought Nanny. This bit is connected to that bit. This one turns. That one turns faster. This spiky bit wobbles backwards and forwards. Oh, well, just twist the first thing you can grab, as the high priest said to the Vestal Virgin. This is the last line of a Discworld joke lost, alas, to posterity. Nanny Og spat on her hands, gripped the largest cogwheel and twisted. It carried on turning, pulling her with it. Blimey! Oh, well... Then she did what neither Granny Weatherwax nor Magrat would have dreamt of doing in the circumstances. But Nanny Og's voyages on the sea of intersexual dalliance had gone rather further than twice around the lighthouse, and she saw nothing demeaning in getting a man to help her. She simpered at Cassanunda. Things would be a lot more comfortable in our little pied-a-tour if you could just push this little wheel around a bit, she said. I'm sure you could manage it, she added. "'Oh, no problem, good lady,' said Cassanunda. "'He reached up with one hand. "'Dwarfs are immensely strong for their size. "'The wheel seemed to offer him no resistance at all. "'Somewhere in the mechanism something resisted for a moment "'and then went clonk. "'Big wheels turned reluctantly. "'Little wheels screamed on their axles. "'A small important piece flew out "'and pinged off Cassanunda's small bullet head. "'And, much faster than nature had ever intended, "'the hands sped around the face.' A new noise right overhead made Nanny Og look up. Her self-satisfied expression faded. The hammer that struck the hours was swinging slowly backwards. It struck Nanny that she was standing right under the bell at the same time as the bell, too, was struck. Bong! Oh, booger! Bong! 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 Mist rolled through the swamp and shadows moved with it, their shapes indistinct on this night when the difference between the living and the dead was only a matter of time. 
Mrs. Gogol could feel them among the trees, the homeless, the hungry, the silent people, those forsaken by men and gods, the people of the mists and the mud, whose only strength was somewhere on the other side of weakness, whose beliefs were as rickety and homemade as their homes, and the people from the city, not the ones who lived in the big white houses and went to balls in fine coaches, but the other ones. They were the ones that stories are never about. Stories are not on the whole interested in swine herds who remain swine herds, and poor and humble shoemakers whose destiny is to die slightly poorer and much humbler. These people were the ones who made the magical kingdom work, who cooked its meals and swept its floors and carted its night soil, and were its faces in the crowd, and whose wishes and dreams, undemanding as they were, were of no consequence. The Invisibles. And me out here, she thought, building traps for gods. There are various forms of voodoo in the multiverse, because it's a religion that can be put together from any ingredients that happen to be lying around, and all of them try, in some way, to call down a god into the body of a human being. That was stupid, Mrs. Gogol thought, that was dangerous. Mrs. Gogol's voodoo worked the other way about. What was a god? A focus of belief. If people believed, a god began to grow. Feebly at first, but if the swamp taught anything, it taught patience. Anything could be the focus of a god. A handful of feathers with a red ribbon around them, a hat and coat on a couple of sticks. Anything. Because when all people had was practically nothing, then anything could be almost everything. And then you fed it, and lulled it like a goose heading for pâté, and let the power grow very slowly, and when the time was ripe, you opened the path backwards. A human could ride the god rather than the other way round. There would be a price to pay later, but there always was. In Mrs. Gogol's experience, everyone ended up dying. She took a pull of rum and handed the jug to Saturday. Saturday took a mouthful and passed the jug up to something that might have been a hand. Let it begin, said Mrs. Gogol. The dead man picked up three small drums and began to beat out a rhythm, heartbeat fast. After a while, something tapped Mrs. Gogol on the shoulder and handed her the jug. It was empty. Might as well begin. Lady Bonanna, smile on me. Mr. Safeway, protect me. Stride, wide man, guide me. Hotologa Andrews, catch me. I stand between the light and the dark, but no matter, because I am between. Here is rum for you, tobacco for you, food for you, a home for you. Now you listen to me good. Bong! For Magrat it was like waking from a dream into a dream. She'd been idly dreaming that she was dancing with the most handsome man in the room, and she was dancing with the most handsome man in the room, except that he wore two circles of smoked glass over his eyes. Although Magrat was soft-hearted, a compulsive daydreamer, and, as Granny Weatherwax put it, a wet hen, she wouldn't be a witch if she didn't have certain instincts and the sense to trust them. She reached up, and before his hands could move, tweaked the things away. Magrat had seen eyes like that before, but never on something walking upright. Her feet, which a moment before had been moving gracefully across the floor, tripped over themselves. Uh, she began, and she was aware that his hands, pink and well manicured, were also cold and damp. Magrat turned and ran, knocking the couples aside in her madness to get away, her legs tangled in the dress, the stupid shoes skittered on the floor. 
A couple of footmen blocked the stairs to the hall. Magrat's eyes narrowed. Getting out was what mattered. Hey! Ouch! And then she ran on, slipping at the top of the stairs. A glass slipper slithered across the marble. How the hell's anyone supposed to move in these things? She screamed at the world in general, hopping frantically on one foot. She wrenched the other shoe off and ran into the night. The prince walked slowly to the top of the steps and picked up the discarded slipper. He held it. The light glittered off its facets. Granny Weatherwax leaned against the wall in the shadows. All stories had a turning point, and it had to be close. She was good at getting into other people's minds, but now she had to get into hers. She concentrated. Down deeper, past everyday thoughts and minor concerns, faster, faster, through layers of deep cogitation, deeper, past things sealed off and crusted over, old guilts and congealed regrets. But there was no time for them now. Down and there, the silver thread of the story. She'd been part of it, was part of it, so it had to be a part of her. It poured past. She reached out. She hated everything that predestined people, that fooled them, that made them slightly less than human. The story whipped along like a steel hawser. She gripped it. Her eyes opened in shock. Then she stepped forward. Excuse me, your highness. She snatched the shoe from the duke's hands and raised it over her head. Her expression of evil satisfaction was terrible to behold. Then she dropped the shoe. It smashed on the stairs. A thousand glittering fragments scattered across the marble. Coiled as it was around the length of turtle-shaped space-time known as the Discworld, the story shook. One broken end flapped loose and flailed through the night, trying to find any sequence to feed on. In the clearing, the trees moved. So did the shadows. Shadows shouldn't be able to move unless the light moves. These did. The drumming stopped. In the silence there was the occasional sizzle as power cracked across the hanging coat. Saturday stepped forward. Green sparks flew out to his hands as he gripped the jacket and put it on. His body jerked. Erzulia Goggle breathed out. You are here, she said. You are still yourself. You are exactly yourself. Saturday raised his hands with his fists clenched. Occasionally an arm or leg would jerk as the power inside him squirrel-caged around in its search for freedom. But she could see that he was riding it. It will become easier, she said, more gently now. Saturday nodded. With the power flowing inside him, he had, she thought, the fire he'd had when he was alive. He'd not been a particularly good man, she knew. Genua had not been a model of civic virtue. But at least he'd never told people that they wanted him to oppress them, and that everything he did was for their own good. Around the circle, the people of New Genua, the old New Genua, knelt or bowed. He hadn't been a kind ruler, but he'd fitted. And when he'd been arbitrary or arrogant or just plain wrong, he'd never suggested that this was justified by anything other than the fact that he was bigger and stronger and occasionally nastier than other people. He'd never suggested that it was because he was better. And he'd never told people they ought to be happy, and imposed a kind of happiness on them. The invisible people knew that happiness is not the natural state of mankind, and is never achieved from the outside in. Saturday nodded again, this time in satisfaction. When he opened his mouth, sparks flashed between his teeth. And when he waded through the swamp, the alligators fought to get out of his way. It was quiet in the palace kitchens now. 
The huge trays of roast meat, the pigs' heads with apples in their mouths, the multi-layered trifles had long ago been carried upstairs. There was a clattering from the giant sinks at the far end, where some of the maids were making a start on the washing up. Mrs Pleasant, the cook, had made herself a plate of red striped fish in crawfish sauce. She wasn't the finest cook in Genua. No one got near Mrs Goggle's gumbo. People would almost come back from the dead for a taste of Mrs Goggle's gumbo. But the comparison was as narrow as that between, say, diamonds and sapphires. She'd done her best to cook up a good banquet, because she had her professional pride, but there wasn't much she felt she was able to do with lumps of meat. Genuine cooking, like the best cooking everywhere in the multiverse, had been evolved by people who had to make desperate use of ingredients their masters didn't want. No one would even try a bird's nest unless they had to. Only hunger would make a man taste his first alligator. No one would eat a shark's fin if they were allowed to eat the rest of the shark. She poured herself a rum and was just picking up the spoon when she felt herself being watched. A large man in a black leather doublet was staring at her from the doorway, dangling a ginger cat mask from one hand. It was a very direct stare. Mrs Pleasant found herself wishing she'd done something about her hair and was wearing a better dress. "'Yes,' she said. "'What do you want?' Mm, "'Want food, Mrs Pleasant,' said Grebo. She looked him up and down. There were some odd types in Genua these days. This one must have been a guest at the ball, but there was something very familiar about him. Grebo wasn't a happy cat. People had made a fuss just because he dragged a roast turkey off the table. Then the skinny female with the teeth had kept simpering at him and saying she'd see him later in the rose garden, which wasn't at all the cat way of doing things, and that had got him confused, because this wasn't the right kind of body and nor was hers. And there were too many other males around. Then he'd smelt the kitchen. Cats gravitate to kitchens like rocks gravitate to gravity. I seen you somewhere before, said Mrs Pleasant. Grebo said nothing. He'd followed his nose to a bowl on one of the big tables. Want? he demanded. Fish heads, said Mrs Pleasant. They were technically garbage, although what she was planning with some rice and a few special sauces would turn them into the sort of dish kings fight for. Mm, want, Grebo repeated. Mrs Pleasant shrugged. You want raw fish heads, man? You take em, she said. Grebo lifted the bowl uncertainly. He wasn't too good with fingers. Then he looked around conspiratorially and ducked under the table. There were the sounds of keen gurgitation and the bowl being scraped around on the floor. Grebo emerged. Milk, he suggested. Fascinated, Mrs Pleasant reached for the milk jug and a cup. Saucer. Grebo said. And a saucer. Grebo took the saucer, gave it a long hard look, and put it on the floor. Mrs Pleasant stared. Grebo finished the milk, licking the remnant of his beard. He felt a lot better now, and there was a big fire over there. He padded over to it, sat down, spat on his paw, and made an attempt to clean his ears, which didn't work because inexplicably neither ears nor paw were the right shape, and then curled up as best he could which wasn't very well, given that he seemed to have the wrong sort of backbone, too. After a while, Mrs Pleasant heard a low, asthmatic rumble. Grebo was trying to purr. He had the wrong kind of throat. In a minute, he was going to wake up in a bad temper and want to fight something. 
Mrs. Pleasant got on with her own supper. Despite the fact that a hulking great man had just eaten a bowl of fish heads and lapped a saucer of milk in front of her and was now stretched out uncomfortably in front of the fire, she found she didn't feel the least bit afraid. In fact, she was fighting down an impulse to scratch his tummy. Magrat wrenched off the other slipper as she ran down the long red carpet towards the palace gateway and freedom. Just getting away, that was the important thing. From was more urgent than to. And then two figures drifted out of the shadows and faced her. She raised the slipper pathetically as they approached in absolute silence, but even in the twilight she could feel their gaze. The crowds parted. Lily Weatherwax glided through in a rustle of silk. She looked Granny up and down without any expression of surprise. All in white, too, she said dryly. My word, aren't you the nice one? But I've stopped you, said Granny, still panting with the effort. I've broken it. Lily Weatherwax looked past her. The Snake Sisters were coming up the steps, holding a limp magrat between them. Save us from people who think literally, said Lily. The damn things come in pairs, you know. She crossed to Magrat and snatched the second slipper out of her hand. The clock was interesting, she said, turning back to Granny. I was impressed with the clock, but it's no good, you know. You can't stop this sort of thing. It has the momentum of inevitability. You can't spoil a good story. I should know. She handed the slipper to the prince, but without taking her eyes off Granny. It'll fit her, she said. Two of the courtiers held Magrat's leg as the prince wrestled the slipper past her protesting toes. There, said Lily, still without looking down, and do stop trying that hedge-witch hypnotism on me, Esme. It fits, said the prince, but in a doubtful tone of voice. Yes, anything would fit said a cheerful voice from somewhere towards the back of the crowd, if you were allowed to put two pairs of hairy socks on first. Lily looked down. Then she looked at Magrat's mask. She reached out and pulled it off. Ow! Wrong girl, said Lily. But it still doesn't matter, Esme, because it is the right slipper, so all we have to do is find the girl whose foot it fits. There was a commotion at the back of the crowd. Courtiers parted, revealing Nanny Og, oil-covered and hung with spiderwebs. "'If it's a five-and-a-half narrow fit, I'm your man,' she said. "'Just let me get these boots off.' "'I wasn't referring to you, old woman,' said Lily, coldly. "'Oh, yes, you was,' said Nanny. "'We know how this bit goes, see. "'The prince goes all round the city with the slipper, "'trying to find the girl whose foot fits. "'That's what you was planning, so I can save you a bit of trouble.' How about it? There was a flicker of uncertainty in Lily's expression. A girl, she said, of marriageable age. No problem there, said Nanny cheerfully. The dwarf Casananda nudged a courtier proudly in the knees. She's a very close personal friend of mine, he said proudly. Lily looked at her sister. You're doing this. Don't think I don't know, she said. I ain't doing anything, said Granny. It's real life happening all by itself. Nanny grabbed the slipper out of the prince's hands and before anyone else could move, slid it onto her foot. Then she waggled the foot in the air. It was a perfect fit. There, she said. See, you could have wasted the whole day. 
Especially because there must be hundreds of five and a half narrow-fit, narrow-fit wearers in a city this size, Granny went on, unless, of course, you happen to sort of go to the right house right at the start, if you had, you know, a lucky guess. But that'd be cheating, said Nanny. She nudged the prince. I'd just like to add, she said, that I don't mind doing all the waving and opening things and all the royal stuff, but I draw the line at sleeping in the same bed as Sonny Jim here. Because he doesn't sleep in a bed, said Granny. No, he sleeps in a pond, said Nanny. We had a look. Just a great big indoor pond. Because he's a frog, said Granny. With flies all over the place in case he wakes up in the night and fancies his snack, said Nanny. I thought so, said Magrat, pulling herself out of the grip of the guards. He had clammy hands. Lots of men have clammy hands, said Nanny, but this one's got them because he's a frog. I'm a prince of blood royal, said the prince, and a frog. I don't mind, said Casananda from somewhere down below. I enjoy open relationships. If you want to go out with a frog, eh, it's fine by me. Lily looked around at the crowd, then she snapped her fingers. Granny Weatherwax was aware of a sudden silence. Nanny Og looked up at the people on either side of her. She waved a hand in front of a guard's face. Cool, she said. You can't do that for long, said Granny. You can't stop a thousand people for long. Lily shrugged. They're not important. Whoever will remember who was at the ball, they'll just remember the flight and the slipper and the happy ending. I've told you, you can't start it again, and he's a frog. Even you can't keep him in shape the whole day long. He turns back into his old shape at night. He's got a bedroom with a pond in it. He's a frog, said Granny flatly. But only inside, said Lily. Inside's where it counts, said Granny. Outside's quite important, mind, said Nanny. Lots of people are animals inside. Lots of animals are people inside, said Lily. Where's the harm? He's a frog. Especially at night, said Nanny. It had occurred to her that a husband who was a man all night and a frog all day might be almost acceptable. You wouldn't get the wage packet, but there'd be less wear and tear on the furniture. She also couldn't put out of her mind certain private speculations about the length of his tongue. "'And you killed the Baron,' said Magrat. "'You think he was a, a particularly nice man?' said Lily. "'Besides, he didn't show me any respect. "'If you've got no respect, you've got nothing.' Nanny and Magrat found themselves looking at Granny. "'He's a frog.' I found him in the swamp, said Lily. I could tell he was pretty bright. I needed someone amenable to persuasion. Shouldn't frogs have a chance? He'll be no worse a husband than many. Just one kiss from a princess seals the spell. A lot of men are animals, said Magrat, who'd picked up the idea from somewhere. Yes, but he's a frog. Look at it my way, said Lily. You see this country? It's all swamps and fogs. There's no direction. But I can make this a great city. Not a sprawling place like Ankh-Morpork, but a place that works. The girl doesn't want to marry a frog. What will that matter in a hundred years' time? It matters now. 
Lily threw up her hands. What do you want, then? It's your choice. There's me, or there's that woman in the swamp. Light or dark, fog or sunshine, dark chaos or happy endings. He's a frog and you killed the old baron, said Granny. You'd have done the same, said Lily. No, said Granny. I'd have thought the same, but I wouldn't have done it. What difference does that make, deep down? You mean, you don't know, said Nanny Og. Lily laughed. Look at the three of you, she said, bursting with inefficient good intentions, the maiden, the mother and the crone. Who are you calling a maiden, said Nanny Og. Who are you calling a mother, said Magrat. Granny Weatherwax glowered briefly like the person who has discovered that there is only one straw left and everyone else has drawn a long one. Now, what shall I do with you, said Lily. I really am against killing people unless it's necessary, but I can't have you running around acting stupidly. She looked at her fingernails. So I think I shall have you put away somewhere until this has run its course, and then... Can you guess what I'm going to do next? I'm going to expect you to escape, because after all, I am the good one. Ella walked cautiously through the moonlit swamp, following the strutting shape of Legba. She was aware of movement in the water, but nothing emerged. Bad news like Legba gets around, even among alligators. An orange light appeared in the distance. It turned out to be Mrs. Goggle's shack, or boat, or whatever it was. In the swamp, the difference between the water and the land was practically a matter of choice. Hello? Is anyone there? Come along in, child. Take a seat. Rest up a little. Ella stepped cautiously onto the rocking veranda. Mrs. Goggle was sitting in her chair, a white-clad raggedy doll in her lap. Um, Magrat said... I know all about it. Come to Erzulia. Who are you? I am your friend, girl. Ella moved so as to be ready to run. You're not a godmother of any kind, are you? No, no gods, just a friend. Did anyone follow you? Ah, uh, don't think so. It's no matter if they did, girl, no matter if they did. Maybe we ought to move out into the river for a spell, even so. We'll be a lot safer with water all around. The shack lurched. You'd better sit down. The feats make it shaky until we get into deep water. Ella risked a look, nevertheless. Mrs. Goggle's hut travelled on four large duck feet, which were now rising out of the swamp. They splashed their way through the shallows and gently sculled out into the river. Grebo woke up and stretched, and the wrong sort of arms and legs. Mrs. Pleasant, who had been sitting watching him, put down her glass. "'What do you want to do now, Mr. Cat?' she said. Grebo padded over to the door into the outside world and scratched at it. "'Want to go out, Mrs. Pleasant?' he said. "'You just have to turn the handle there,' she said. Grebo stared at the door handle like someone trying to come to terms with a piece of very advanced technology and then gave her a pleading look. She opened the door for him, stood aside as he slunk out, and then shut it, locked it, and leaned against it. Ember's bound to be safe with Mrs. Goggle, said Magrat. Heh, 
said Granny. I quite liked her, said Nanny Og. I don't trust anyone who drinks rum and smokes a pipe, said Granny. Nanny Og smokes a pipe and drinks anything, Magrat pointed out. Yes, but that's because she's a disgusting old baggage, said Granny without looking up. Nanny Og took her pipe out of her mouth. That's right, she said amiably. You ain't nothing if you don't maintain an image. Granny looked up from the lock. Can't shift it, she said. It's Octoron too. Can't magic it open. It's stuffed, locking us up, said Nanny. I'd have had us killed. That's because you're basically good, said Magrat. The good are innocent and create justice. The bad are guilty, which is why they invent mercy. Now I know why she's done this, said Granny darkly. It's so's we'll know we've lost. But she said we'd escape, said Magrat. I don't understand. She must know the good ones always win in the end. Only in stories, said Granny, examining the door hinges. And she thinks she's in charge of the stories. She bends them round herself. She thinks she's the good one. Mind you, said Magrat, I don't like swamps. If it wasn't for the fog and everything, I'd see Lily's point. Then you're nothing but a daft godmother snapped Granny, still fiddling with the lock. You can't go around building a better world for people. Only people can build a better world for people. Otherwise it's just a cage. Besides, you don't build a better world by chopping heads off and giving decent girls away to frogs. But progress, Magrat began. Don't you talk to me about progress. Progress just means bad things happen faster. Anyone got another hat pin? This one's useless. End of CD 7